We're working our way through uh, the book of James. We just have a couple more messages in James. Today it's James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Next week we'll have the Christmas message on Christmas Eve. And then on that evening we'll have the Christmas Eve message. It's a little backwards this year because of Christmas being uh, Christmas Eve being on a Sunday. So next Sunday, the Christmas message, and in the evening, Christmas Eve message at 6.30. So there won't be a prayer time on the House of Prayer next Sunday. Amen. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we look at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, and I will read that to you. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. This is the Lord's word. Amen. You may be seated. Actually, we're going to do that last verse next week, but it was in with the paragraph, so I included it there. So the, the first verse in our passage today, verse 7, just the first half of that verse says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And, you know, all through James, he's called us brothers, my dear brothers, uh, over and over again. I, don't, I didn't count how many times, it's at least a dozen times in the book of James, emphasizing that we are a spiritual family. And looking back at the preceding passage, um, we can make a few conclusions. It seemed like there was um, the wealthy in the church, um, were causing problems. They were uh, abusing others in the church, probably wealthy outside the church as well. You know, the court system at that time was as, as corrupt or more corrupt. It was probably much more corrupt than ours today. Um, bribes were common. The rich were often ruled in favor uh, because the judge would expect something at back. So the wealthy were abusing their laborers, sometimes not paying them, as the passage says, the previous passage said, and, and gaining from them. So uh, the verse just prior to our passage for today, I think ends with this allusion to Jesus um, about them persecuting and, and yet the, the righteous, persecuting the righteous, and yet they don't resist you. And of course, the ultimate example of that, the righteous one, Jesus, um, did not resist those who were trying him. 
And I think um, probably James is, is trying to get his, the people, the churches that were scattered abroad to remember Jesus' words, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you also. To use Jesus' prediction from one of his parables, it seems that there were a lot of weeds within the congregation. Weeds sown among the wheat. Jesus meant that the church will always have within church gathering those who are still in the world and trying to take advantage of others in the church for their own personal gain. So what should we do when we face these situations? Listen to the parable I think that James was drawing from. You know, as we go through, have been going through James, we see all these parallels from his half-brother, Jesus. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And so we keep seeing him express something Jesus said in a little different way. I think he's probably drawing from Matthew chapter 13, 24 to 30, where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat also with them. Let both grow together until harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather my weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, this is one of the few parables that Jesus specifically explained the details of. Um, the explanation is in Matthew 13, 36 to 43. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And the disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all that causes all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So the weeds in this parable um, are, are very familiar there with uh, people who, who grow wheat. They're called darnell. And the darnel look a whole lot like wheat until the grain, uh, the heads of grain begin to form. You really can't tell the difference by the leaves, but as the, the fruit, the, the wheat grains start to form on the head, there's a difference. You can start to notice a difference. 
and being in an agrarian society, these people understood this. The Darnell is gonna rob the wheat of its nutrients, but if you try to pull it out, it's gonna damage the wheat roots. And this goes along with Jesus' expression, you will know them by their fruits. The result of what we place our faith in will be the evidence of whether we are wheat or weeds. Apostle Paul describes the difference in the fruit we bear in Galatians chapter five. There's two kinds of fruit, fruits of the flesh and fruits of the spirit. Now, we are not called to be fruit inspectors, but the elders within a congregation are to discipline those who blatantly sin causing harm to others or damaging the testimony of the church. In extreme cases, Paul instructs that they even put out of the church the, the, the one who is um, obstinately sinning, that they will experience the difference of being in and outside the covering of the church and hopefully be restored with a humble heart, as was the case in the Corinthian church. So that seems contradictory of Jesus' statement However, Jesus said the field is the world. Paul was speaking of within the church. Nevertheless, Jesus' warning does imply that the church as part of the field will experience those who are not genuine believers and are there for personal gain. Actually, the Darnell is poisonous. It, it, it can even kill if you consume enough of it. And by the way, its fruit is black, whereas the wheat is brown. So putting these scriptures together, then we can conclude that the church is going to have, always will have, ever since the time of Christ, unbelievers among us who cause damage. And in obvious cases of sin that affects the congregation and becomes known to all, there has to be discipline and even putting them out of the church if there's no repentance. In most cases, however, we must do what James and Jesus were teaching be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit, the grain on the stalk that identifies it as being wheat. Impatience is a fruit of the weeds, those in the flesh. Now remember, that's only the maturing of the grain that exposes which is which. What stage is? we are at in our spiritual maturity can be measured by the formation of the fruit of patience. I think I heard a few uh-ohs out there. How are you doing? If we're very honest, most of us will admit we need to mature in the fruit of patience. Remember, it's patience with those who previously described as slanderers, the rich who oppress and take advantages of, of us, even those who withhold wages, in other words, fraud. We're to be patient until the coming of the Lord. We know that then the weeds will be gathered and thrown into the fire while the wheat is gathered and put into our Lord's barn. Our patience may reveal in time that what we thought were weeds actually turn out to be wheat. 
As the previous passage stated, there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. We patiently wait for his righteous judgment. Are you struggling under injustice? Or dealing with the slander or, or just tired of this fallen world and the evil that seems so prevalent? Be patient, James says. The judge is coming. Is the daily news depressing? Does evil seem to prevail? Be patient. The judge is coming. We often consider the troubles of life and trouble within the church in a negative light, as if somehow this unavoidable evil was prevailing. Kent Hughes gives us a biblical perspective in his sermon on this particular passage. He writes this, life without struggle and difficulty is bland and tasteless. Malcolm Muggeridge wrote in his book, Jesus Rediscovered, suppose you eliminate suffering. What a dreadful place this would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would disappear. He's had enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. In other words, our moral development, our character is largely dependent on the experience of suffering. Without trials, we'd be morally dwarfed. In fact, the study of the lives of great people reveals there's a consistent link between the crucible and true greatness. No wise person would seek to be exempt from the healthy discipline of trouble. For one thing, trouble promotes trust. We children of God seldom trust God as we do when we are in big trouble. Troubles knock secondary things away. They sharpen our focus and increase our grip on God. And when all attempts at self-defense fail, we're forced to trust in the only one whose trust can truly help. Troubles bring us near God. When our regular comforts don't suffice, we draw near to Him. It's hard to swim or to learn to swim on dry land, but throw us in the water and we have to swim closer to God. Our troubles are those waters in which we're obligated to swim toward God. And troubles strengthen our communion with God. Without troubles, we wouldn't learn prayer. Jesus says, in effect, we consider blessed those who have persevered. That's because they learn trust because they draw near to God, and because their communion with God becomes what it ought to be. The last half of verse seven. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient 
establish your hearts. James gives us the example of the farmer who patiently waits for the fruit to form. The previous passage addressed the oppression of the poor by those who were rich, and James is encouraging them to endure patiently, knowing that they will reap the justice they deserve, but also believers will reap the reward for faithful endurance. Guzik points out that many, uh, the, the many different ways of the manner in which we should wait compares to that of a farmer. He writes, he waits with reasonable hope and expectation of reward. He waits a long time. He waits working all the while. He waits depending on things not of his own power with his eye on the heavens. He waits despite changing circumstances and many uncertainties. He waits encouraged by the value of the harvest. He waits encouraged by the work and the harvest of others. And he waits because he really has no other option. He waits because it does no good to give up. And he waits, aware of how the seasons work. He waits because as time goes on, it becomes more important to wait, not less to do so. He trusts God to bring the, the rain in its season. You know, Israel had two seasons of rain. They call it the early, which is actually in the fall because the Jewish New Year begins in the fall. So in the fall, there are those rains and then in late, in late winter, early spring, there are rains, and the rest of the year is dry. That's why whenever we do tours to Israel, we do it in November or early March, because we are avoiding, we're, we're catching after the latter rains, early rains and before the latter rains, so we don't get wet while we tour. Um, those rains come in their season, and that determines the harvest yield. It's kind of like the weather we have here. And last year was a great example. We had great spring rains and good summer rains and everybody had a good harvest. It's not only from the moisture that we had, but lightning affixes nitrogen to the rain, which is God's way of fertilizing plants. Is someone a pain in your side? Do they pers uh, per does their personality irritate you? Be patient. Wait for the Lord to water that soul. It may be early or it may come late, but wait for the fruit to form in their life. Like that farmer, you also be patient. James is repeating this, be patient, this patient command, because it's such an important fruit of the Spirit that we need for the unity and love that we should be expressing so that the world might see the difference in the church. Second half of verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Since the Lord is soon to return, we should establish our hearts. Now that Greek word translated as establish is, is translated in other places as confirm or to fix. It was used of 
describing Jesus' last trip up the Jericho Road into Jerusalem, where it says he set his face like flint. In other words, he was determined, uh, resolutely determined to go to the cross. Our motivation for being resolute in doing the will of God is the soon return of the Lord. Now you might ask, hey, that was 2,000 years ago. Throughout church history, in every generation, the church has expected the return of the Lord. And that's a good thing because it keeps us on our toes, remembering at any moment we might see the Lord. It's a healthy attitude. Our life is like a mist that's here for a moment and then vanishes away. So we never know when we may personally see the Lord. He may come for us at any moment. And living with the expectation of his return keeps us aware that at any time we might be called to give an account of our life to God. And that helps us shun temptation. Jesus said that no one knows the day or the hour of his return. And Peter taught that with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. Now certainly we are closer at any time, at more than any time in history. The development of AI, which in my understanding is, is gonna be the image of the beast that the second beast sets up in the temple of God. Preparations have been made for the new temple to be built. Israel has been restored as a nation. Russia and Iran have become allies for the first time in history just as predicted in scripture. And China's massive army seems also ready to fulfill the predictions in Revelation 16. But whether it's tomorrow or a hundred years from now, we too can say the coming of the Lord is at hand. Will we stand before him without shame? That's why we need to strengthen our hearts, to establish our hearts, to persevere to the end with patience. Verse nine, do, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Be patient, establish your hearts, do not grumble. I, I, I threatened to put that in the entryway of the church, you know, the circle with the line through it, grumble in there. Our, our passage now moves to this negative command, a do not. This is one of those do nots. If from your perspective you start to pick out flaws, you're actually inviting others to do the same to you. Do you really want to go there? James has told us of the blessing of, the, of grace that God gives to the humble. Humility recognizes how flawed we are and passes on the grace we receive from God to overlook the things that annoy us in others. This is especially needed for married couples. And every married couple said, amen. Oh, not every married couple. I guess some of you got it all together. God bless you. <laughs> 
We should always focus on the blessing our spouse is and never dwell on issues that annoy us. If you want to make yourself miserable, just keep saying, man, she keeps pushing my buttons instead of counting the blessings that your spouse is. Marriage is a training ground for how to deal with others, learning how to give and outgive, to honor, to bless by dying to ourselves and serving. We should remember that the judge will recall our words. Jesus said that we would give an account of every idle word, and by our words, We'd be judged, and by our words, we'll be condemned. James touched on this earlier in the letter. The way we judge others is the way God's going to judge us, and that alone should cause us to be abundantly gracious to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The final phrase in this verse is meant to put the fear of God in us. The judge is standing at the door. Are you ready? the heavenly bailiff will say, all rise, the judgment seat of Christ with the honorable judge, king of kings and lord of lords, creator of all things visible and invisible, Jesus the Christ presiding is now in session. Be prepared to give an account. He approaches the bench, and as he does, you will notice his eyes are flames of fire. And when he looks at you, those eyes see right through every wall into your innermost thoughts. Are you sure you're ready? If the royal law is to love our neighbor as ourselves, we violate it when we are grumbling against one another. We should instead be building one another up helping them overcome weaknesses as we let them help us overcome our own. We need to help one another prepare for the coming of the judge. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James has been asking the churches to be patient with the oppression they're experiencing from the rich, knowing that the righteous judge will come to judge them and to assess the Christian's faithfulness. He's told them to be patient like a farmer waiting for the crop to mature, and now he points them to the example of the prophets. We tend to think they were special men endowed with power we do not possess. But if anything, the opposite is true. They were humans with weaknesses like our own. It's true that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and enable them in special ways, but we have the Holy Spirit continually living in us. If they could endure suffering, surely we can too by the same power that enabled them. But we have the added benefit of his abiding presence. Verse 11, Behold, we consider them blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the power of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We read about the prophets and how they remain steadfast in the face of persecution, and we consider them blessed. Certainly the same is true for us. We read about the steadfastness of Job. He did nothing wrong, but he lost his children, 
his wealth and his health. His friends insisted he had done something to incur God's wrath. His wife, in pity for his condition, told him to curse God and die. And at the right time, God revealed himself to Job. And that was the greatest blessing. God also restored all that he had, allowed that he had allowed Satan to take from Job, and then he even doubled it. We see he was blessed both physically and spiritually for enduring. The example that came to my mind was Jeremiah. He preached to the nation of Judah. And from his very beginning of his call, God told him, this is going to be hard. No, no one's going to like your message. They're all going to hate you. How'd you like to get that call? <laughs> we kind of have it, don't we? They mocked him. They imprisoned him. They threw him in a pit where, where he sunk up to his elbows in mud. And when the Babylonians finally came and took them all into captivity, some of the remnant took Jeremiah into Egypt where it is believed that he was stoned. So his end of his life wasn't as pleasant as Job's, but his reward in heaven is going to be something else. Faithful in spite of everything he faced. And the best example, of course, is that of our Savior. Born in a manger, persecuted as a toddler and fled into Egypt, he was surely considered a bastard by some in his hometown of Nazareth. The town eventually turned against him, his own relatives, and tried to stone him. He said he had nowhere to lay his head. The Pharisees and Sadducees tried numerous times to trap him. The crowds turned against him. His disciples betrayed him. The other disciples deserted him. The people called out for his crucifixion. He was scourged almost to death, then crucified in humility, hanging for all to see his torn and battered body. The thieves and religious leaders mocked him as he hung there, and in darkness he bore the wrath of God for the sins of the world. And he was buried in someone else's tomb. The disciples hid in fear and forgot his promise. But he rose victorious. Death couldn't hold him. For 40 days, he encouraged and instructed his disciples and promised the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them and ascended into heaven and given a name above every name at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Do not grumble, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Consider the outcome of those who endured and live for the glory of our King. Amen? Amen. Joe, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give the benediction.